0: Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. And uh, we have, for the past few weeks, been working through this book. We've been in chapter 1 and chapter 2 last week. Um, I I want to introduce our our message in chapter 3, though, this morning by, uh, by telling you that one of the difficulties in interpreting the Bible is the great cultural divide that exists between us and those of Bible times. I mean, let's face it, we live in a different world than they did back then. The time of Jesus was 2,000 years ago. The time when Ruth was written was probably 1,200 years before that, so some 3,200 years ago. People lived differently then. What are some differences between what we live today and, and how they live? What are some cultural gaps that we need to seek to seek to get? Any ideas? There should be lots of them. How they live differently. Then what? Most people farm, very agricultural. Um, that's not the case today. Yes, Nathan. Didn't use combines. You learned that last week. Good. I'm glad you're listening. Uh, what else? Yes, Nathan, uh, Andrew. Yeah, wickedness in some ways has gotten worse as we've become inventors of evil. Good. But I'm thinking things like this, like they dress differently. Like they, they all wore dresses, all the guys did. What, what else? Now there's no Walmart. That's right. Look, no, everything they had, they had to make, had to and to walk everywhere. Yeah, the travel is a lot different. You can't get on a plane and travel halfway around the world. You can walk or ride a camel and go 20, 30 miles a day. What else? No indoor plumbing. No indoor plumbing right. That's big. Sanitary practices a lot different. They had to draw water. Couldn't just come on. Not much education. Right. Women were diseducated as well. Right. Other things. Yeah. Way back there, Colin. What do you got? No electricity. That's right. So lights like this, we couldn't couldn't really have. We'd have a bunch of candles or torches. Yeah, Nathan. Smaller houses. Smaller houses right. Their housing was different. They were mud hit, mud houses, mud huts. Government was different, and, and that all changed from time to time. Geography was different. They. They lived in uh, primarily the the place of the Bible is more like a, um, a Los Angeles kind of weather, warm, dry weather all the time. Didn't have the different uh, different temperature change we do. They they had hills and mountains, where we have just plains and prairie grass. Food was different. No refrigeration. No purification. Measures were different. Money was different. They handled back then. Their their view of of sickness was different than we view back then. I mean, these are are just some of the differences of the the cultural divide between us and them. Now, the good news is this, all right? Nothing's changed in the human heart. So much of what's addressed in the Bible is very applicable to us as we see people in the schemes and their wickedness and people in their love for God. That transcends all culture for all time. And also, most of these differences between us and Bible times are, are easily understood with a basic knowledge of ancient history that most even of the children have here can understand. They can understand what it means to walk. Maybe they don't fully understand it, like uh, maybe if you actually did walk for three or four days to get to grandmother's house 80 miles away, that might be a way to fully experience it, but, but we can understand it pretty easy. And the point of a biblical text is the vast majority of times, 99% of the time, is very clear, even if you don't understand all the culture. So, like for instance, Psalm 133 says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded a blessing, life forever. That's Psalm 133 and um, the psalm speaks of the blessing that comes when brothers walk in unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And the corollary to that is how awful it is and terrible for brothers to live in friction with each other. And then comes two comparisons. It's like the oil coming down upon Aaron's beard, even upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. So... We don't know much about high priests and anointing oil and how special that is. Nor do we know much, really, about dew coming down from Mount Hermon. But even if you didn't know any of that, you would get an idea from verse 1 that it speaks about how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Like, well, here's a good thing, oil coming down upon Aaron's beard, and here's a good thing, dew coming down in Hermon. Even if you didn't understand those things a lick, you could still get the main point of the passage. Now, it's not to deny culture or anything like that, because the more you understand of, of how special and, and, and precious it was when Aaron was anointed as a high priest, and, and, and the oil that, that Moses sanctified him with, coming down upon his beard, just sanctifying him as a priest, coming down upon the, the collars and the edge of his robes, it just pictured a, a wonderful time of a consecration of God's people. Or the dew of Hermon. That's life every winter. You know, it snows up there and then there are ice caps on Mount Hermon and then the the rain comes trickling down and comes in to fill the Sea of Galilee and drips down even the Jordan River. And that is life. So the dew of Hermon coming down in the depths of the summertime in Los Angeles when it's hot and there's no water, there is plenty of water there in the Sea of Galilee. That is life. That is how precious it is brothers dwelling in unity. And the more you understand those things, and the more you understand how precious each of those things, how happy, how delightful they are, they further enhance the main point, but the main point is clear nonetheless. Now, why do I say all this? I say this because we are going to feel the weight of our distance between us and Ruth in this passage today, in Ruth chapter 3, more than in any other passage we've looked at here in Ruth. And I'm not going to say more than in all the Bible, but there is just a lot of distance here, just a lot of things going on of cultural significance that we don't don't quite know, don't quite fully understand, can't fully grasp, but the main point is this, is that we can catch the main point. That even with the distance of culture, and even with the distance of um, the customs of the day, we still get the main point without difficulty. Now, even here what's interesting about Ruth chapter 3 is a lot of scholars are confused because we don't have a lot of historical background to some of these practices, but it doesn't matter, because we can still know the point. Maybe you don't know it with precision, and maybe if we knew a little bit more, we would enjoy the truth more, but we'll, we'll catch the main point just fine. And so you'll find in my sermon a lot of times that I'm just going to say, well, this is kind of what it is, or this, but we don't know exactly. It's sort of like this, but it's not really. But They understood. Well, before I read chapter 3, I want to catch us up to speed. I want to catch us up to speed by reading the two summary verses in the book of Ruth. The first one comes at the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Naomi returned, that is, returned to Bethlehem having gone to Moab because of a, a famine in which she lost her husband Elimelech and her sons Malon and Kilion were there a decade when they died. But Naomi returned And with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law. Ruth had married Malon and had chosen to return, whereas Orpah went back. Ruth, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's a good summary of chapter 1. They were off, but then they returned. And it was Ruth and uh, Naomi who returned to come back to Bethlehem right about the time of the harvest. Chapter 1. Chapter 2. There's a summary verse at the end of chapter 2. Verse 23. So she, that is Ruth, stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest and she lived with her mother-in-law. This word so then captured up everything that took place in chapter 2. You remember how Ruth found favor in the sight of a man named Boaz. That she went and sought to glean. And when Boaz found out that this is the Ruth who came back with the Naomi from uh, Moab, Boaz showers her with blessing. He protected her, allowed her to glean in the field, commanded workers not to touch her, told that she could draw from the water which his servants drank, told his servants not to insult her in every way, but even to set bundles of grain down for her to, to pick up so that life would be easy for her. And so she was there And that was one day she stayed, verse 23, close by the maize to glean until the end of the barley harvest. The barley harvest started about mid-April and through the end of the wheat harvests, which is taking you into mid-June. So it's been a a couple months take place in verse 23. And now we we come to chapter 3. But you need to understand the position here of what's happening here in chapter 3. They were well cared for, Ruth and Naomi, by the kindness of God, by the favor, through the favor of Boaz, they were there. They were taken well care of. However, their, their care was only a short-term solution. I mean, you think of how much barley and how much wheat could they have taken home? Some? Maybe a couple months' worth? Even if it was a year's worth of barley and wheat in the home, it, it, it still left them with no long-term solution in mind. I mean, Ruth and Naomi were two vulnerable, vulnerable women lacking a future. And especially in the case of Ruth, because uh, Ruth could care for Naomi, and she could go out and labor in the field, and she was good at that. She was a strong woman, and she could do that, but, and care for Naomi. But what, what would have happened, say, 20 years from then, as Naomi died, and then Ruth was old and a widow? Who was going to care for her? Ruth was really in a, a difficult situation, and, and and they could maybe get by for a little bit, maybe a year or two, kind of squeak it out. But eventually there needs to be something that changed. They can't, they can't have this forever because Ruth needs someone to care for her. She has no child, no heir, no one to take care of her. They needed security, not just for this year, but they needed security for year after year after year after that. And that's my message title this morning is Seeking Security. I get it from Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Which is Naomi's plan to pursue. But let me just read Ruth chapter 3 in its entirety so we get the picture there in our minds. Then Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, isn't that Boaz, our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered said, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative or as I will read, a kinsman, redeemer. And then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men whether poor or rich. Now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence." Now, it is true that I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And she went into the city. When she had come to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then she said, Wait, my daughter until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Well, my first point is simply this. It's the problem. Verse 1, Naomi acknowledges the dilemma which she and Ruth find themselves in, which is a dilemma for Naomi, but it's more of a, a dilemma for Ruth. Naomi said, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you? that it may go well with you. Now, Naomi knew well in the book of Genesis that said it's not good for a man to be alone. That's why God created a woman to be with the man, to create a helper suitable for him. And the principle is this, that we are social creatures and it's not good to be alone, but we need two of us. As Solomon said later in Ecclesiastes 9, two are better than one. If either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. And Paul would later say, I want the younger widows to get married and to bear children and to keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. And so basically, Naomi's saying this about Ruth. is a Ruth, you're alone, but you need somebody. You need to find security. It's always been her concern. In fact, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 9, she says this, when trying to persuade Ruth to return to the Moabites, she talked to both uh, Ruth and Orpah and said may the lord grant that you both may find rest each in the house of her husband and there it is finding rest which by the way is the same word used here in chapter 3 verse 1 you might have a note with that shall i not seek rest for you she basically is saying this you need a husband let me find rest for you. Let me find security for you that you will have in the provision of another with a, with a husband and with children. It's really what we're seeking this morning. My, my sermon title, like I said, is seeking security. Or, or maybe you say seeking rest or seeking a Redeemer because that's what she was seeking for them. And when you think about it, that's, that's the thing they needed far above anything else. They didn't need bread for a day. They needed security for a life. They needed help for the future. They needed peace that comes with a a provider. And and it wasn't going to be found in themselves. It was going to be found in another who would come alongside them and provide security and sustenance for them. And as the story unfolds, of course, we see that it's found in Boaz, who is, as I said, a a close relative in the New American Standard, or it's better translated, a kinsman redeemer, this word here, translated closest relative, is related to the word "redeem," which is found in chapters three and four, 11 times. It is a key thought of chapter three and chapter four of redemption. And a better way to translate this, rather than a closest relative, is, is like the ESV says. You could you say it as a redeemer. Like Naomi said of Boaz in verse 20 of chapter two. Again, Naomi said to her, "This man is our relative, he's one of our redeemers." or I personally like the translation here of the NIV, he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. That is, he's one of our relatives who is capable and able and willing, potentially, to buy us back and to help us, purchase us with a price to keep us secure. And I would say this is the key word of our chapter this morning. This is the key word of chapters 3 and chapter 4 is the word redemption, Redeeming. In other words, Ruth and Naomi were helpless. They needed help from another. They needed someone else to redeem them. They needed someone else to claim them, to purchase them, and to provide for them. In fact, many commentators have given the three basic requirements for anyone to be a kinsman redeemer. First of all, they need to be a kinsman. They need to be part of the family to redeem. You can't have someone from outside the tribe and outside the family redeem and purchase someone. Furthermore, you need to have a kinsman redeemer who's able to redeem. It takes some resources to redeem. If you don't have the resources, you can't redeem. And thirdly, a kinsman redeemer needs to be willing to redeem. He needs to be willing to allocate his resources toward this act of benevolence. He needs to be family. He needs to be able. needs to be willing. Those are the three basic requirements for someone to be redeemed. And really, right here, we see the great application for us. Because the dilemma of these two women is the dilemma of ours as well. We need security. We need rest. And it's not just for a day we need rest. It's not just for a season we need rest. It's not really even for our life that we need rest. We need rest for eternity. We need help for our souls forever. We need a kinsman redeemer to come and redeem us and purchase us. And he needs to be our relative. He needs to be able to redeem. He needs to be willing to redeem. And of course, Jesus Christ is such a man. He's our relative, and then He took on flesh and blood. Hebrews 2.14 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. He's able to redeem and that He's the heir of all things. Jesus said, all things that the Father has are Mine. He has infinite resources at His disposal. And Jesus is willing to redeem. He showed that on the cross when He said in John chapter 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. The whole reason why Jesus came was to redeem us from our sins. That's why He came. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Galatians 4, God sent His Son... Born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law. We who believe in Christ have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Peter says it this way, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. In many ways, I would say this is the purpose of the book of Ruth. It gives us a picture of the redemption of Jesus and what He's accomplished for us. Kind of, kind of right here. It's, it's, not a, it's not an exact picture, okay? but it is a picture of one person redeeming another, one person saving the life of another, one person giving of his resources in kind benevolence. In that sense, Boaz becomes the Christ figure and does kindness to Ruth who seeks rest and seeks security. And so as we think about Ruth and Boaz this morning, I would encourage you as we go through this to think of yourself and to think of Jesus. Because Jesus is in many ways like Boaz and foreshadows the redemption that is to come. Anyway, that's the problem. They need security. They need rest. They need a Redeemer. And then the plan comes in verses 2-5. through Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down and then he will tell you what you shall do. Okay, this is where we see one of those gaps in culture. Anyone, any one of you women hunt down a, a man in the dark before and lie at his feet? I don't think so. Okay, no volunteers on that one. If you do, that would be a great story to tell. We can hear about that sometime later. But on, on first blush, I mean, this, this sounds a bit on the edge, doesn't it? Um, to wash up, and to wear nice clothes, and to put on some nice smelling perfume to catch the man's attention, and then to, to spy this man, watch him get married, with the harvest festival, with food and drink, watch where he lies down and then go and then uncover his feet and lie down with him all under the cover of night so that no one sees. It's not in the open for everyone. This is hidden. This is secret. With no accountability of any kind, this woman is to make herself attractive and lie down with the man. In a day when everyone did was right in his own eyes, it easily could end up in this occasion for immorality. As all the trappings of danger associated with it. People of the Old Testament could be stoned for such a thing. And astonishingly, Ruth, this woman of integrity, says, all that you say, I will do. Now, I wish I could tell you that we knew of some cultural practice, you know, of lifting up covers and lying down with men asking to be married then. We... But we don't have anything. We don't have any ancient Near Eastern documents that describe anything like this. All we can do, and by the way, we're not lost. All we can do though is look at look at the book of, book of Ruth for clues. I think they understood. We don't quite understand, but we can look at the book of Ruth for some clues to figure out what's what's happening here. Um, and as we do, we're going to find out this is a sort a, a sort of a marriage proposal. Now it's it's not a, a full marriage proposal, but it's... You'll see there's some, some differences in it, but it but it is some. And so as Ruth said here in verse 5, all you say I will do, you you know what she sang on the way down, don't you? Go into the threshing floor, I'm gonna get married. That's just singing on the way down. That's not in the text, but... <laughs> anyway... We have now we've seen the problem and the plan and now the proposal comes in verses 6-11. through 11. Here we go. Let's look at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and covered his feet and lay down. Now, you've got to love the obedience of Ruth here, right? She did according to all that her Mother-in-law commanded her. She's just a, an obedient, submissive, godly woman in the sense. She washed herself, made herself smell nice, put on her best clothes, which may not have been so great, because they were poor, but was something. And then you can just imagine her spying out Boaz at the feast. You know, and, and the feast, this is the end of the harvest celebration. I mean, this is the time when the, the, new way, the, the, the new grain comes in, the wine abounds, they're having a party. It is a festive occasion. It's a party for all to be had. People, the whole town is there, and all the time Ruth is like, I and Boaz, you know, kind of discreetly, but not letting him notice who she was, but noticing where. And, and then Boaz leaves out the back door, and she, she follows him in the secrecy of night and watches where he lies down. I think she waited a bit because she came to him after he was asleep because we even see later that he was startled. Like, oh, someone's at my feet. I didn't know who that was. It's going to come here in verse 8. But it it shows that she waited a little bit and then uncovered his feet and lay down. That may have been the process of cold feet touching cold feet. You never know. I know some of you who are married know what that's about. I'll be, Whoa! What is that? That might be what's going on. I'm not exactly sure. But she was startled. He was startled in verse 8, right? It happened in the middle of the night that the man... And by the way, it's interesting. once I read it, I tried to explain, show this. It's, it, when it's talking about intimate details, the Bible's really sensitive about this. It doesn't, doesn't name them. It just talks about the man and the woman. The man was startled. And bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered and said, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a kinsman redeemer. There's a lot lot going on here. Let's kind of pick it apart. We see Ruth identifying herself first as a maid of Boaz. Boaz. Hints at the, the previous kindness that Ruth had experienced from Boaz's hand as she returned the field, to glean every day. Really, what happened was I think she she transformed from a gleaner to more of an employee. I think Boaz employed her as a maid. Um, in fact, that's even interesting in chapter three, verse two. That's how Naomi identifies her. Now is not Boaz a redeemer with whose maids you were? It's kind of like she she even became one. She was a worker in the field. Second, comment here, is that Ruth, by these words, she's being romantic. You've got to catch the romance here. This is is coming. When when she says, I'm Ruth your maid, so spread your covering over your maid. That's a subtle reference to the first time they met. Do you remember when they met? Remember the first thing that Boaz said to her? Almost. Chapter 2, verse 12. Look over there. He said, verse 11, I've heard about everything that, that, that you did. You left the land of your birth. You come. And then, verse 12, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And he lays this blessing upon Ruth because she has come to seek refuge favor and blessing and security under the wings of God. The Hebrew word there is k'nef. It's just a, wings is what it is. Listen to the Hebrew here, though, of verse 9. I am Ruth your maid, so spread your k'nef over your maid. Spread your wings over your maid. Now, it means cover, but it is the same word. And, and I think, I, I think um, Boaz caught the romance there. It's a little bit like the man who's going to... Um, to ask his girlfriend for marriage. Uh, she will uh, marry him. And so it's it's like the man who takes her to the first place where they had dinner together. And kind of is walking through saying, oh, you remember this place? Oh, you remember this place? Oh, this is the, this is the same place we ate it. At. And I remember what you ordered. And uh, by golly, you ordered the same thing. In the case of my wife, it's chicken alfredo <laughs> ordering the same thing. And uh, I ordered this. And do you remember that? And just kind of bringing up this remembrance of what it used to be like. Will you spread your wings over me? And I I don't think it was lost on Boaz. I, I think he knew instantly what was going on. As Ruth said, yes, I'm coming to seek refuge under God's wings, but I'm doing so by seeking refuge under your wings. Your wings will become God's wings. Well, he seemed to instantly know what was, what was happening. It was a request for marriage. Third observation comes, the request for redemption though, really. You are a kinsman redeemer is what she says here in verse 9. That is, Boaz, you can redeem. Will you redeem me? It's a request for her security, verse 1. It's a request for her rest. But it's, it's sort of a marriage proposal on top of it, but it seems to be different because there seems to be a, a purchase. And again, trying to understand exactly what this is, we can't quite understand it, but it is marriage wrapped up in the redemption process. Ruth, in some ways, appears to be claiming the application of the levirate marriage, is what it's called, uh, where a, uh, a man is required to marry the widow of his deceased brother. But, but that would require Boaz to marry Naomi and not Ruth, right? So it's, it's, not, it's not quite that. But it sort of appears to be close like that. But also with it becomes this, comes this request for financial help. She wants Poet to purchase her. Almost buy her from slavery, is what she's saying. That's where the idea of redemption comes. And though it's hard for us to fully understand what's happening, don't be discouraged. The text is sufficient. They understood. We don't. But we can understand everything we need to understand. Verse 10. And then he said, now this is pretty good for a man who is, you know, perhaps a little bit on the enjoyment of his wine the night before. Waking up instantly, knowing what's taken place, he said a blessing, honoring, um, honoring Ruth first. May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last loving ki- kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. We get an insight here in the integrity of Boaz. Here it was the middle of the night, a woman lying at his feet. He'd just made Mary in the feast a few hours before. Temptations abound. He could have taken advantage of her in many ways, could have approached her sexually. Rather, he approached her honorably. And that's the character of this man, Boaz. That, that's why he, he, he figures, prefigures Christ, because of his integrity with which how he walks. So let's walk through his response. First of all, he honors Ruth for choosing Boaz rather than the younger men. Now this does give us a hint a little bit about Boaz and his age. He's always calling her, my daughter, my daughter, my daughter. Um, and I think there's probably a generation difference there. I think Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, was more Naomi's age. And yet here was a, a younger daughter a younger girl. And he commends her not going after the young man but choosing Boaz. And I think the point there isn't so much the age difference as much as it is what's Ruth looking for in a man. She's looking for a man who walks with integrity and honesty and honor who she knows when she approaches him late at night in a vulnerable position she's going to be safe in his arms. And then Boaz also honors her by mentioning that she is a woman of excellence Again, she is a woman, Chayil, which is a woman of strength. It is not by accident that Boaz is called in chapter 2, verse 1, a man of great strength, of great wealth, of great power. And that is who Ruth is here. She's a woman of strength, not material monetary power, but it's her character which is so strong. It's almost as if the author is saying, this is a match in heaven. We have a strong man and a strong woman. They're fit for each other. Now, Boaz knew this, that she was a strong woman, an excellent woman, even before he he met her. I mean, I I trust you remember the conversation that he had in the field. First time he saw her, he asked one of his servants, in chapter 2, verse 5, whose young woman is this? And then she explained that she's the Moabite woman who returned with Naomi. Boaz had heard of her. Boaz had heard of, of this commitment. And she had made an impression on other people. And she made an impression upon upon Boaz even before seeing her, even before knowing her and, and then getting to know her. She saw this. He saw this as well. But if you notice here, even, even this conversation, this, this, this uh, blessing, this, uh, this observation that she's a woman of excellence isn't so much what Boaz says, it's her reputation for all my people. That might be my workers, or it might be all of the people in Bethlehem. Know that you are a woman of excellence. She just has this reputation around of what kind of woman she is, which is why Boaz knows that she's not coming seeking sexual favors, but she's coming with a higher um, question to ask. Well, having said these things, he pledges all. I will do whatever you ask. But there's a problem. And that's my fourth point. Problem, verse 12. Yes, Boaz is a relative. Yes, Boaz is able to redeem. He's a strong man, a wealthy man. Yes, he is willing to redeem. He respects this Ruth. He even loves this Ruth. But the problem comes about that Boaz isn't the first in line. There's another relative closer to Boaz who needs to be given first opportunity. This is hard. Verse 12, and this is a problem. It is true, Boaz says, I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there's a kinsman redeemer closer than I. His quick response, I believe, shows that Boaz has thought about this moment for a while. Maybe he and Naomi had talked about it a little bit. I'm not sure. But I think Boaz had had seen Ruth and had her eyes on her and seen what kind of woman she was. Because you can't just say these things in the deep of night just being awakened unless you've previously thought of such things. And she had thought of them. But it speaks of her, his integrity. I mean, here was this younger woman. Boaz had feelings for her. But due to the age difference, what, what would it be like if he would have asked her for her hand in marriage? I mean, oh, here's this filthy old man. What's you going after young women for? So he, in his integrity, didn't seek it, but rather that's why Ruth had to be the one to take the initiative in this work. Which, by the way, let, let me just let me just segue this just a just a little brief brief parentheses. Okay, uh, I, I think about especially for us danger of being a homeschool environment. Most of us, now we're not all homeschools. I praise God for that, but much of us in the homeschool movement, oftentimes people really study the Old Testament to try to figure out dating and marriage. And this word courtship comes up and think, oh, that's the biblical way. And and whenever that comes about, it's always, you know, women have to be totally passive and it's just the man who can initiate. And and there's good in some of that. But let me just say, Ruth here is one who's initiating. Maybe kind of throw some of those kinks into that nice boxy system that lots of people like to have. This is, if you will, the... The Sadie Hawkins dance, right? Where and I know at least one couple here is a Sadie Hawkins. That's you, Jody, right? You asked Brian to a, a fun dance right here in the school, right? Yep. And I know of another instance where a woman asked a man to marry him. It's my parents. You can read that hear that story later. Apparently how it goes is that my mom was talking to my dad one time and said, So, Stan, when are we gonna get married? <laughs> And that's how it happened. So it's not so bad here, all right? Maybe you can tell your side of the story another time. I, that's 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 really, I've exhausted my knowledge, and I hope, you know, maybe a small group tonight, Phil, why don't you maybe ask him about it. Karen, you'll remember that, huh? That's for sure. Um, but just know, I and mean, think about all the culture going against there, and still, there was a women initiation in this. So women don't don't feel like young girls. You just ask your parents, okay? But um, when the time is right. Anyway, that's the end of my my segue. Let's get let's get back into this. All right, where where was we? Oh yeah. I think the whole fact that um, um, that Boaz knew he couldn't take Ruth as a, a wife right there shows that. Uh, this isn't quite like a marriage proposal in our day, because if that were a case, Boaz might merely be able to say, "Yes, Ruth, I will marry you." But, but there's something else going on here of this, of this redemption, this price, this purchase that needs to be done by the closest relative. So it's kind of a wedding proposal, but it's it's not quite. But whatever it is, we fully understand it because there's this other relative that needs to be approached, and Boaz pledges to do everything he can. And so here's. Boaz's plan. The plan coming in verses 13-18. through 18. We saw Naomi's plan earlier. Now here's Boaz's plan to close the deal, if you will. Remain this night, he said in verse 13. And when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he has not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. And then, I love it. He takes her under his wings and spends the rest of the night with her at his feet. And I think this is very symbolic of Boaz to say, you lie down here until morning. I think it's a way that as Ruth had come to seek refuge in Israel's God, your God is my God and I will seek refuge there. So Boaz now is providing his refuge for her. Boaz extending his grace to her. There's, yes, there's great uncertainty the next day. We don't know what's going what's to happen. But yet still, Boaz was saying, you're safe, Ruth. You're safe either with me or you're safe with another. And I'm sure she slept well until the first crack of dawn started to show. And, and she lay, verse 14 says, his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to this threshing floor. And again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went to the city. and I I think again we see Boaz protecting Ruth by protecting her honor. I mean, the woman of excellence isn't going to go down and sleep with a man at night. Uh, All the rumors that would have gone around. And so Boaz said, Ruth, go home so nobody sees. Even though what they did was completely honorable and completely above board, she said, still go home. <clears throat> so she rides at home before anyone recognizes her. And rather than going home empty, she comes home with barley, six measures. And okay, here's difficulty. We don't know exactly how big six measures are. Um, so... It's estimated about 60 pounds what most commentators say. You know, really, in the end, it doesn't really matter how much, but it matters that he was going to give to her a, a blessing of this barley to go home. Now, picture the scene as verse 16 picks it up from Naomi's perspective. From what she knew, she developed this plan. Ruth said, I'll do that, and then sent Ruth off to the feast. Maybe Naomi was there. Who knows? Maybe she cut out early. I'm not exactly sure, but she sent... Ruth off into the night. And Ruth doesn't return home until dawn. Parents, when you send your single daughter off sometime and she doesn't get home before dawn, you'll keep some parents awake at night. I'm sure. Probably kept Naomi awake. She probably didn't have to be wakened when Ruth comes home. But she's thinking about, well, did it go right? Did it go astray? Did it go astray? Maybe I placed her in a, a, a place of danger. I, I don't know. But as dawn was breaking, here comes Ruth into the home. Big smile on her face, I'm sure. Big load of 60 pounds of barley on her back. And as and Naomi says, How'd it go? Oh. Coomph! That's how it went. It's pretty good. Reminiscent of the first time she came home with a bunch of barley from Boaz. Just she, She's found favor again. Verse 16, she came home to her mother-in-law. She said, how'd it go, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her. And then she said, and I love this, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. I think um, Boaz is trying to send a subtle message, isn't he? Don't go home empty I think it clearly refers to the fact of how how Naomi had gone to Moab full and had come back empty. But Ruth now had gone to Boaz empty, but she came back full. Things are looking up. The promise of of God is there. and, And just this whole communication, don't go back to Naomi empty. She's had enough emptiness in her life. Come back with a blessing. Come back full. What a picture of the way that God provided for Ruth and Naomi. And this barley was an indication that Boaz was willing to execute this plan of being a redeemer. And so it's all good news, except there was some bad news, right? There was another, the first in line to redeem, and it wasn't Boaz. And then Naomi knew the character of Boaz, and she said, Wait, my daughter. And again, this is Naomi's plan. Wait, my daughter. Until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Now tune in next time to see how it all all, all flushes out. I had every intention of, of preaching through chapter three and four, saying, I can't we can't just leave right here, so what's gonna happen? Now you can read ahead, you you can get that. But I really thought chapter three and chapter four I was gonna go and and then really it was even this morning I just said, No, I gotta Slow down. I just got to stop right here. And we'll make a break here. We'll, we'll catch it next time. But I want to wrap up my message like this. Have you sought security for your life? Have you sought for a Redeemer in your life? Someone to wash away your sins? I mean, I think of the extent here to which Ruth extended herself in seeking a Redeemer. She put it all on the line. She put herself in great vulnerability, placed her only hope in Boaz. Just said, Boaz, will you please? And so it is that we come to Christ. We come to Christ, place all on the line, and say, Christ, please redeem me. I need your redemption. Ruth found an honorable man who treated her with dignity and respect. And I, I would tell you this, as respectful as Boaz was to Ruth, Jesus is infinitely more respectful and honorable and caring and loving and gracious and kind to all who come to Him for help. And that's, that's kind of the picture of, of Ruth and, and how it goes. And we will see more of that next week. And especially we'll see how it ends, how it prophesies of the Messiah to come. Well, let's pray. Father, I pray that we all would seek our security in You. not really even, in many ways, a one-time act. It's a, it's a time act that we continue to go to again and again, saying, God, we need safety. We need help this day. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us this day our debts, as we have forgiven this day our debtors. Oh, God, help us. And may we realize that, that You're the one in whom we can find rest. As my mind goes back to Hebrews chapter 4. And that we who have believed enter that rest. And it's the rest of no works need to do to be righteous before You. It's the rest of being complete in Jesus. So God, I pray as as Ruth has drawn us into the story, may it draw us into the greater story, the the story where You have redeemed us. You being our kinsmen, taking flesh and blood like us. And You being able being the heir of all things, owning all things, and being willing to purchase us upon the cross. Thank You for that great redemption, O Lord. And we pray that we go forth from this place to live for You and for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.